Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and to turn them open to Genesis chapter 1, to the passage our friend Kim read for us a moment ago, Genesis chapter 1. We continue our journey uh, through the first few chapters of this book under our series titled Origins. You know, as we, as we prepare to dive into this text tonight, uh, I've been thinking about a few things this past week, one of which is uh, this dynamic that adopted children can sometimes have a hard time adjusting to life in a new home. Life with a new family, life with an, in, a new, in a new place, in a new environment, they can sometimes have difficulty adjusting and acclimating to that. There's a guy by the name of Russell Moore who adopted a couple of children from a Russian orphanage several years ago now, and he describes that acclimation process uh, very well. And I want to share his words with you because I find them illuminating in a myriad of ways. But here's what he says. He says, when Maria, that is his wife, when Maria and I first walked into the orphanage where we were led to the boys the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, we almost vomited. We almost vomited in reaction to the stench and the filth of the place. The boys were in their cribs, in the dark, lying in their own waste. Leaving them at the end of every day was painful, but leaving them the final day before going home to wait for the paperwork to go through was the hardest thing either of us had ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxim calling out for us and falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears, and I turned around to walk back into the room for just a minute. I placed my hand on both their heads and said, knowing they could not understand a word of my English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, 18. It just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. When Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family life was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents prepared for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They'd never seen the sun, and they'd never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles per hour down a Russian road. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what was waiting for you. A home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was nasty, but they had no other reference point. That was home. Now I knew the boys had acclimated to our home, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming and they would not have to fight for the scraps. This was the new normal. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. But I still remember those little hands reaching for the orphanage and I cannot help but see myself there. You see, adopted children can sometimes have difficulty acclimating to a new home with a new family. And I share that with you tonight before we jump into Genesis chapter 1 because we must keep in mind as we study this passage that the initial readers of the story of creation found in Genesis chapter 1 were the redeemed Israelites. 
this entire generation of people who had been living in the orphanage of Egyptian slavery. They had been oppressed and afflicted in that land under the oppressive regime of a Pharaoh doing everything that they said to do when they said to do it, uh, back-breaking labor for so long. And one of the reasons Genesis chapter 1 was given to us is because it's designed to kind of recalibrate the minds of the recently redeemed Israelites after centuries of living in the darkness of Egyptian slavery. And so with that said, when we consider there, there's a huge learning curve for the Israelites to go through while they're transitioning from orphanage life or slavery and being brought into a new land, a new home, where they will know God, the creator, as their redeemer. And so there's some things they have to learn. Their heart has to get acclimated to this new reality, to this new home. And Genesis chapter 1 is designed to help catalyze that process. So when you think about this chapter, understand that it has a couple of roles and it plays a couple of roles in our lives today as well. On one hand, it functions pastorally. This chapter has a pastoral purpose in the sense, in the sense that it was written to Israel to help them know who their God is and what their God is like. But then there's also a polemical purpose to it. There's an argument being made in Genesis chapter 1 that is subtle but significant where the writer knows that Israel has to kind of be unlearn all the things that they were conditioned by and conditioned with under Egyptian slavery, meaning they had a view of the world that was more Egyptian and less uh, Bible or less scripture. And so Genesis chapter one was written to help clarify that and to bring some order to their perspective. It was written to help them adjust to new life in a new home and and so it brings forward these great truths about who God is. And, and in many ways, it, it contrasts starkly with their experiences in Egypt. And one of the most significant truths that this chapter is screaming to the people of Israel and, it is, and God is screaming to us today is this idea that he loves life. That's essentially the God that we serve. That's essentially the God that we worship, a God who loves life. Israel didn't get that message in Egypt. It's hard to learn that message about who God is when you're being oppressed and afflicted, when you're living as slaves in a land that is not your own. And so Genesis chapter 1 has a pastoral purpose behind it and a polemical purpose to it as God is recalibrating their minds and in many ways... We want to look at this passage today and recalibrate our own as well, recognizing that God loves life. And so this is what we begin to see in the storyline of creation. Last week we saw, we covered the first three days, one, two, and three. And we said over the course of those days, God was creating a home to host those that he loves. He was setting the table, so to speak, for a feast to take place, for communion to occur. That's days one, two, and three. Then when you move into days four, five, and six, which we will cover today, God is filling that home with those he loves. That's essentially what God does in creation. He fills the earth with life, with animated creatures, with animated beings who will live life and enjoy life and experience life on earth. It's a wonderful depiction of God's love for life in days four, days five, and days six. And so a few things we want to point out about God's efforts in this direction is on one hand, if he's filling a home with those he loves, he's, 
He's doing a few things, one of which he's bringing order to the life that he fills the earth with. You see this all throughout these days of creation, four, five, and six. You see God bringing order to life. You see him creating these spheres, these areas, these realms where different types of creatures will occupy and fill out and enjoy. You have the sky, you have the seas, you have land, and each one of those are occupied and and kind of governed and ruled by different types of creatures. So he's ordering life in this world. And he's doing it in a polemical fashion, especially when you look at verse 16. Because on day four, that's where we are, the luminaries are brought onto the scene. We begin in verse 14, actually. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. That seems strange, right? The writer of Genesis knows a word for sun and he knows a word for moon, but he chooses to describe it in a very odd fashion. A greater light and a lesser light. Why doesn't he name the sun and why doesn't he name the moon? Well, again, this is where we understand that this passage serves a polemical purpose. And the writer avoids using names because those names were related to Egyptian gods and goddesses. The words translated sun and moon were very closely connected to the to languages spoken in antiquity, all of which sounded very similar coming from the same dynamic where the sun was often deified and the moon was often deified. And so creatures, human beings would look to serve the sun and the moon. But here God is recalibrating the people of Israel's thinking, saying these are not persons or deities to be named. These are objects that don't exist for you to serve, but these are objects that exist to serve you. That the sun and the moon is put in place to serve humanity so that life can flourish in the world. They are objects designed to serve creation. And so God puts these nameless objects, so to speak, what we know to be the sun and the moon in verse 16 in reference there. And and we know that the sun and the moon serves life on earth. They help us with navigating the seas, don't they? They help us with time and seasons and days and nights and, and marking calendars and building calendars. The sun and the moon rules. They serve humanity in that sense because they're objects designed to serve, not to be served. They're not deities. And so God, the writer of this passage doesn't name the sun and the moon, just refers refers to them as these objects, a greater light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night. But then also notice that there's a passing reference to the stars. He says that and then he just kind of makes a passing gesture. And then there's also the stars, all those lights in the sky that are beautiful. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the stars or celebrating the beauty of the stars. It's a passing reference to them. And once again, it's a polemical purpose. The writer knows that that people are prone to worship the stars, to deify the stars. But here we learn that they're not, again, they're not deities, they're objects. In fact, we might describe the stars as ornaments. They're decorations. They're decorations. They're ornaments in the sky, not to be worshipped, 
but to be looked at and to be considered beautiful and enjoyable. There's a big difference between viewing the stars as deities and viewing the stars as ornaments. And here it seems that the scriptures are telling us they're ornaments. Now think about what this means, though. Because if this is true, and it is true in light of this passage, that the sun and the moon are not man-named, the stars are just giving a passing reference going by, knowing that the sun and the moon and the stars occupy a predominant position in many people's worldviews, here in the Bible we find that they don't occupy a major position. They don't play a significant role as far as determining the destiny of our lives or we're to look to them to chart the course of our lives through this world. No, what you get here is a stern warning to everyone who would seek the stars in charting their lives. It's a stern warning against those of us who would want to look to the stars for direction. It's a stern warning for those of us who might want to play and entertain zodiac signs and astrology. It's a stern warning saying if you look to the stars to provide direction and charting out the course of your life, you might as well be looking at an ornament on a Christmas tree because they're not substantially different in that regard. That's not what the stars were given for. We don't look to them as deities providing that type of guidance. No, Israel will learn, and you and I will learn as well, that we look to the Creator to do that. We look to the God behind, beyond the stars, the God who hung the stars in the sky. We look to Him to chart and to determine our destiny. We listen to the Creator who's revealed Himself to us through the Scriptures. We recalibrate our minds in that direction. And so that also means, and there is a stern warning here, that that activities like zodiac signs and astrology may be considered and they should be considered as forms of idolatry where we're looking to creation to play a role in our lives that only the creator should play. And so we have to check that. We have to be sensitive to that. We have to be aware of that so that we don't play games or entertain those types of things that are present in the world that is. But then you also see God ordering life, not only with the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky and reminding his people that, look, I am your God, not these objects that I created. He also brings order to creation in days five and six, where you have these living creatures filling out and occupying these certain spheres or realms. Day five, you have the living creatures uh, filling out the seas. And then on day six, you have terrestrial creatures coming onto the scene and and notice that God orders these living creatures to do certain things according to their kinds. There's that repeated phrase over and over and over again that, they are, that God organized them according to kinds. And he had them divided up into these types of groups. And within that, you also find some ordering because you know that within certain kinds or within certain species, God the Creator has placed inherent restraints and limitations upon kinds so that species may be able to evolve and grow within themselves, but they can't grow between themselves. This is why a bear can't hook up with a monkey, right? This is why a centaur is a fun idea in fictional stories, but a centaur is a figment of the fallen imagination that is a blurring of the distinctions and the kinds that God set up in creation. And so we want to hold those thoughts in mind because it speaks to our God being an orderly God. And the diversity and the kinds that exist on earth, all of them carry with them a type of dignity. And all of them carry with them a contribution and a role to play in God's love of life in this world. This is why we must not be pressed into this 
this habit that is occurring in our culture today where we want to blur and erase any line of distinction between different kinds. Understanding that God loves diversity. So what he creates something to be, it is good. What he creates something else to be, it is good. There are different kinds. There's a diversity in the world that needs to be respected. And the line of diversity should not be erased and it should not be blurred. We're going to look at that a little more closely next week when we talk about what it means to be male and female and created in the image of God. And here you have God ordering the world according to kinds. But not only does he bring order to life, he brings beauty to life like an artist because what you consider all these creatures that are coming up in these different realms, the sea and the sky and the land, there's beauty in the diversity that is filling out the earth. A beautiful variety of creatures are filling up the world. You know, biologists like to say that there's about 1.5 million to 1.8 million species in the world. That's a lot. And there are others who would take the estimate a little bit higher, say, no, there's actually around 3.6 to 100 million different species. I don't know who's right on that. I just know there's a lot of species. There's a lot of kinds in the world. That's because God brings beauty to life, and there's beauty in diversity. There's beauty in variety. And so he fills the earth with a variety of creatures, and there's an inherent beauty to that because all of these species, all of these creatures are a part of God's tapestry. And there's a, there's a buildup from verses 14 all the way to uh, verse 26. There's a buildup there when you get to the climax of God's creation where you have human beings brought into the world and, and the beauty of life that is found there. When you get into verse 26, let's read that one again. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So there is a holy hierarchy, so to speak, between in the created order where we were created in the image of God and we have a role to play with that's described as dominion. And later we read the word subdued in the earth and we'll talk about what that what that means. But but this whole chapter kind of builds to that moment and then it slows down. It slows down when God creates human beings in his image because they are, we are the climax of the created order. And it's a beautiful thing. If you, if you look at verse 26, it also says that God says, God kind of deliberated with himself, let us make man in our image. And, but then you drop down to verse 27 and it says, so God created man in his own image. So it moves from the plural us in verse 26 to the singular his in verse 27. And that has left many people wondering what in the world is that about? And there's one guy by the name of Henry uh, Block who articulates what's going on here very well, and I agree with him. He says that God addresses himself in this way, and he can do this only because he has a spirit who is both with him and distinct from him at the same time. Here are the first glimmerings of a Trinitarian revelation. That's what's going on in verse 26, let us... And so there's a connection between who God is as Trinity and you and I being created in the image of God. There's a connection between God uh, having diversity in the midst of his unity and the diversity and the unity that we are to be about in the world that is. So God is bringing beauty to the world by creating a litany of creatures, climaxing with male and female created in his image. It's a beautiful thing. But not only does he bring beauty to life, God brings dignity to life he brings dignity to life. You see this with the Imago Dei mentioned there. 
And we'll look at the Imago Dei in more depth next week. Next week, we'll take that square on. and We're going to go and kind of do a deep dive into the Imago Dei. But let me just point out two things. Being created in the image of God means at least this. It means, one, there is an inherent value to every, in every single person on the planet. Having been created in the Imago Dei, there is an inherent value to who you are. You see, the reason why each one of you matters is because God made you. The reason why every person in this city matters is because God made them. There's an inherent dignity, an inherent value that comes along with being human. And so there's value there. And when the fall occurs, the fall does not erase our value. If you look further in the book of Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And there's this passage, there's this verse that is quite interesting. Listen to what's being said. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. God is giving some, uh, a rule to live by because he's wanting to prevent murder and prevent death, something that was quite common up to that point. And so God speaks into that and listen to what he says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why is that? Well, it's for God was made, God made man in his own image. It's, and contrary to what some might think, they read that verse, and does this mean God is devaluing life? Because it kind of sounds like capital punishment, but the exact opposite is true. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, blood for blood, so to speak. And the reason for that is because human beings are so valuable. They are made in the image of God. So to take another person's life is a very big deal. It's a heinous offense. Human beings carry with them an inherent value, and that value needs to be respected. That value needs to be cherished. That value needs to be championed. And so Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 doesn't devalue the worth of life. It elevates the worth of life, saying, look, blood for blood, if you take a life, a life's going to be taken. And it's affirming the value of life. Now, there's a lot more to be said about how that verse fleshes out that we'll explore at some point down in the future. But, but the point is, there's an inherent value to every human being. But then not only do you see value in the Imago Dei, you see purpose. Because in verse 28, what does he do? God tells us what to do. Verse 28, and God blessed male and female. He blessed humanity. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's purpose there. There's multiplication. There's purpose there in subduing the earth. In other words, we have the role of engaging the earth and looking at all God created and all that he provides to life in this world and using the resources of of the earth to contribute towards life on earth, to help life flourish in the world. He's saying this is what it means to subdue the earth. This is what it means to exercise dominion. You are to represent me on the world. Rule, love, serve, utilize the raw materials of the created order to bring about blessing and life to those around you. So you have purpose there. And again, we'll explore that more depth, in more depth next week. And then lastly, not only do you see God bringing order to life and beauty to life and dignity to life, you see him bringing joy to life. He brings joy to life all throughout this chapter. You see it in a couple of ways. One, there's the word of blessing that pops up time and time again. Verses 20, verse 22, verse 28, for example, where God blesses creatures. But then you have a word of delight, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31, where God declares what he creates good. 
building to verse 31 where he looks at everything that he has made and he said, it is very good. He's delighting in creation. And so what this means for the people of Israel who are leaving Egypt and moving towards the promised land, God is recalibrating their thinking, wanting them to know that, look, God has created the earth, he's created the world, and in this world, this earth should be enjoyed. His own affirmation and delight in his created order tells Israel and tells you and I today that the world is to be enjoyed. In other words, we are not to despise creation. We are not to abuse or misuse creation. We are not to engage the world in an oppressive fashion. We're not Greek in this regard. The Greek worldview had a day, had a perspective that said everything material is bad, everything spiritual is good. The Bible flies in the face of that saying, no, the material creation is good. It can be enjoyed. It is not to be demonized. It is not to be disregarded. It is, it is good. And even after the fall, that did not change, which is why when you read in the psalmist, you get to this moment where God says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth still belongs to God and the fullness thereof. There is all the beauty in it, all that which can be enjoyed in it is all the Lord's. And so you and I, as people who know the creator, we should live lives marked by joy. We should be characterized by enjoying God's good creation. And so this also means that you and I should not become functionalists in our worldview. So somebody comes up to you over coffee and says, so, so why did God make trees? And your response in that moment shouldn't simply be, well, trees give us oxygen. That's a functionalist answer. Sure, trees give us, option, uh, give us oxygen, but that's not, that doesn't tell the whole picture. Trees are also a joy to look at, right? They're a joy to see. They're a joy to to interact with and to walk among. There's joy in creation. So we don't want to be functionalists. We don't want to be mechanistic in our worldview. We want to see the beauty in God's design in his created order. A guy by the name of C.H. Spurgeon knew this very well. So that he was, he was a pastor back in about the 20th, 19th century. And he was one of the most influential leaders of his day and age. And but he was also a guy, though he loved Jesus, he told, he told people about Jesus all over the world, he was also a guy who struggled with depression. He had a hard time shaking this irrational depression that his heart would fall and slide into over the course of his days. But one of the things that Spurgeon, one of the ways that he would push back against his depression was going outside and interacting with God's creation. He saw the trees and the flowers, the mountains and the streams as ministers to his soul when he was down. And so he would go out and find grace in the created order as God would revive him and encourage him and give him fresh air. And, and he would interact with creation in that type of way. And there's a strong word for those of us who may struggle with depression or who may get down. There, there's a sense in which when that happens, we need to take a hike. And I made that in the most positive way I can say that. Take a hike. You know, get outside. Interact with the created order. Let God minister to you through his, through his creation that can do wonders for the soul that is downcast. There's joy to be found in creation, and we need to interact with it more often. 
So you get to the end of the chapter and you have this moment in creation, God filling a home with those he loves, filling the world with life. And you get to the end and he declares it all very good. Things are good at that moment. But you know things don't stay good because the Bible has a lot more to say. There's a lot more pages. You're wondering, well, why didn't the story just end there? Well, because a lot of things went down, one of which sin came in and sought to undo the goodness of God's creation. You move on into Genesis chapter 3, and that's when things go south. And despite the goodness of God as displayed in creation in the fall, this good creator is forsaken by those he loves. Those human beings that were created in his image, endowed with value and endowed with purpose, those same human beings then turned their backs on the creator. They did not trust the creator. They did disobeyed the creator. They turned their backs on him and, and sinned against him. And so you get into the fall and you find that God is forsaken by those he loves. And sin is introduced in Genesis chapter 3. And this sin seeks to undo the goodness of creation. And it does it in a few ways. You just think about the words we just threw out a moment ago. There's a sense in which sin now disorders life. Sin disorders life as God set it up. So that now you and I are no longer subduing creation. As, as fallen human beings, we are being subdued by creation. We're no longer exercising dominion that contributes to human flourishing and to life on earth. We are being dominated by creation. We are being enslaved by creation because sin disorders life. Perhaps the best description of sin's disordering effects that you'll read about in the scriptures is found in Romans chapter 1. Let me invite you to hold your spot in Genesis chapter 1 and jump all the way to Romans chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. And there's a passage there I want to read for us. It's lengthy. I won't comment on all of it, but I want you to hear it. And I want you to know it so that you might go back to it and revisit it perhaps later this week. Because here in Romans chapter 1, Paul is describing how sin disorders life. Picking up in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. Now I'll warn you, this is some heavy stuff. But hang in there. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, we should be able to look at creation and know there's a creator. That's what he's saying. And since people aren't doing that, um, they're still without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resemb resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relationship relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's it's a sweeping indictment of the fallen human condition saying sin disorders life. And since sin disorders life, it also distorts beauty. So that now we're not thinking rightly, we're not looking at the world rightly, we need our minds recalibrated, which is what the gospel does, but until that time happens, we're not, our understanding of the beauty around us is distorted as well, which is why when you get into verse 32, it says this, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They're no longer simply avoiding sin, they're actually affirming sin. That's the fallen human condition. That's sin disordering life and distorting beauty. So that now we don't find beauty in what is true and what is honorable and what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent and praiseworthy. We don't readily find beauty there. We have a tendency to call evil good and good evil. We have a tendency to call that which is unnatural natural and that which is natural unnatural. That is the distortion of life or the distortion of beauty and the disordering of life. I mean, you just consider, you just consider a life being knit together in a mother's womb. If you've ever seen a video or a sonogram or Explore the process it takes for a life to grow in a mother's womb. That is a beauty to be be beheld. But we live in a culture that has grown increasingly blind to that beauty. Increasingly blind to the beauty of life in a mother's womb. So that now it is very easy to discard that life for reasons unrelated, most often, to the actual immediate health of the mom. It's the disordering of life and the distorting of beauty. So not only does sin do that, sin in the end always devalues life. That's the downward cycle that we're talking about. When the fall came, the fall came to undo all that God set up as good in creation. Order, beauty, value. And now what is sin doing? Sin is devaluing life. Sin is distorting beauty. Sin is disordering life. And then all that boils up into that moment where, well, when you get into the idea that sin devalues life, it's reminding ourselves that sin always says that life is cheap. Sin always says life is cheap. This is why denigration happens. This is why we fail to help people in need because we believe that those in need are cheap. We devalue life. This is why abuse arises. This is why abortion is practiced. This is why racism occurs, sexism, slavery, murder, genocide. What is it? It's all the devaluing of life. And that's what sin does. That's what the fall has ushered in to God's good creation. And then you get to that final dynamic that sin also robs life of joy. Sin robbing life of joy by holding out phantom promises of fleeting pleasures. Robbing joy from people. 
from those of us who want to say our way rather than God's way, thinking that our way is the more enjoyable way, when that is, that is a phantom promise of a fleeting pleasure. It's kind of like taking a kid to McDonald's and buying a Happy Meal. You know, McDonald's has made billions of dollars selling happiness to children. And that happiness comes in a strange form, the form of a hamburger and fries and a toy. They're not just buying a hamburger, fries, and a toy. They're buying happiness. That's what a Happy Meal represents. And so as moms and dads, we cave at times and we go to buy that for our kids, but that happiness will inevitably wear off. And eventually the kids need a fix and they got to go back for more and more and it becomes this addictive spiral that's not good. And you and I know that the Happy Meal, a Happy Meal represents a fleeting pleasure. That happiness will wear off. And in the end, you'll find that the Happy Meals only bring joy to one group, right? Ronald McDonald. He's quite happy having sold over 20 billion Happy Meals, right? He's the only one getting happy while everyone else is getting broke. I say that because the older we get, our Happy Meals just take on different forms and they come at a higher cost, but they leave us broke, they leave us empty. They leave us wanting more. And the only one who is happy in that equation is the thief who steps in to steal, kill, and destroy the life and the joy that God created us for. And so we want to consider how sin robs us of life so that we are not succumb to sin's lies all the days of our life in this world. This is why, again, the good news of the scriptures is that there is hope in the midst of all of this. So you have a really good picture in Genesis chapter 1. You have a really bad picture in Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 1. But all of it comes, all of it comes full circle when you step into redemption. Because although in the fall God is forsaken by those he loves, in redemption God refuses to forsake those he loves. We forsake him, he refuses to forsake us. So he steps in in the gospel and he brings us into Christ and he makes us what? He makes us new creations. He redoes that which he started in Genesis chapter 1. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's redemption. That's gospel. That is God saying, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans in a fallen world. I'm going to come rescue you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to bring you into a new home and a new reality. And you're going to learn how to grow into this reality of being a new creation in Christ. The first fruits of a whole new world that's going to come in one day. This is redemption. God refusing to forsake us. And so what do we do? We follow the storyline of the scripture that carries us all the way to Jesus. And we step into Christ. We are made new. And what happens in Christ? Order is restored. Because when you step into Christ, that's when things are put in their proper place. Creation is viewed appropriately as a gift from God for us, not, a, not something that is to be God for us. We, we step into Christ and order is restored. We enjoy creation now without being enslaved to creation. This is why if we are in Christ, we should enjoy life in this world more than any other people on the planet. We are free to enjoy creation. We are free to thank God for creation. We should be active. We should be out. We should be living life. In Christ, order is restored. And when you step into Christ, beauty is beheld once again. 
Once you are put into Christ and you become a new creation, you start seeing things differently. Beauty is beheld once again. It's kind of like those stained glass windows and those big cathedrals that, are, that sit vacant and are now tourist attractions in England. You, you walk beside these buildings and you look and you see these dull, lifeless stained glass windows and you think, well, what's the big deal about those? Well, from the outside, you don't see much beauty. What, where do you have to go? You have to get inside. You walk into the cathedral, then you turn around, you look up, and you see the window from the inside. And that's when you see beauty. That's when you see glory. That's when you see light. But it comes into focus when you get in. So as followers of Christ, when we step into him, beauty can be beheld in a way that it wasn't beheld before. We are now able to see that which is true and noble, that which is excellent and praiseworthy. We're able to see it through the lens of Christ, and it puts everything into color for us. And this, again, enhances our ability to enjoy life in this world. So we step into Christ, and beauty is beheld. We step into Christ. Dignity is affirmed. You see, value is determined by the price a person is willing to pay for something. Value is always determined by the price one is willing to pay. This is why when the Nintendo Classic came out several months ago, $50. People bought it up quick. Now what? You go online, it's selling for $250, $300, $400, $500. People are willing to pay for this Nintendo Classic. Value is determined by the price someone's willing to pay. Well, how much did God pay for your redemption? What was God willing to pay for you to be brought into Christ? Well, I'll tell you, 1 Peter chapter 1. You and I were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him as believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What did God pay for us? He bought us. He redeemed us. He ransomed us with the shed blood of the Son of God, blood for blood, echoing Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. This is how valuable you are. This is how valuable you are to me. God saying, I will not forsake those I love. So in Christ, dignity is affirmed. You want to believe that you matter? See yourself not only as created in the image of God, see yourself in Christ, knowing that you're redeemed there and your value is reaffirmed in Jesus. And then when you get there, that's when you begin to see that in Christ, joy is eternal that the joy that you find in Christ lasts. And this is where we begin to discover that God wants far more joy for us than we want for ourselves. And so God refuses to let us settle for the phantom promises of fleeting pleasures that sin offers us day in and day out. He's constantly beckoning us, step into Christ, step into Christ, step into Christ. This is why we're always talking about as, as a church, we are in Christ, we are in Christ, we are in Christ. That's where joy is found. That's where joy lasts. That's where we want to sink in and live as we journey through the world that is. You see, in Christ, God sets everything right. Order is restored, beauty is beheld, dignity is affirmed, and joy lasts. That joy is eternal and indestructible. This is who we are in Christ. And so we want to recalibrate our thinking tonight by considering the scope of creation, fall, and redemption. We want to 
We want to recalibrate our hearts by considering how God looked at us and said, I will not leave you as orphans in a fallen world. I'm coming to get you. So he sent forth Jesus to live and to die and to rise again so that we might be recreated in him with order and beauty and dignity and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you asking that you would help us to find ourselves in Christ. I pray, God, for every disciple in this room who is trusting in the gospel, I pray that they would rest in that reality, that they would learn to live out the fact that they are new creations in Christ and that they would grow and they would be recalibrated in that position. I pray for anyone who's in this space tonight who may not yet know Jesus, I, who are not yet in Christ, I pray, God, that you would bring them in. I pray that they would turn from their sin and that they would trust in the Savior, that they would find life in Christ. God, would you do that work among us in Jesus' name? Amen.